and welcome. My name is Sophie Scott-Brown and I'm your host for Any Further Questions. My guest today is Professor Ali Ansari from the University of St Andrews um, and we'll, today we'll be picking up on all those questions that we didn't get time to do from your lecture on Iran's constitutional revolution of 1906. So Ali, very very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to jump straight in because there were lots of questions. Um, okay, so Let's start with, what do you think the role of Shia Islam was in the 1906 revolution? Well, I mean, it was it was pretty pivotal on both sides of the debate, really. I mean, Shia Islam in the sense that um, if you're looking at the, at the clerical class in particular, there were a number of very senior clerics who were extremely supportive of the idea of constitutionalism and uh, constitutionalism as we would understand it in the West. I mean, that's the idea they understood about the concept of the rule of law and... Uh, the idea of constraining, you know, limiting the powers of, of, of the autocracy. But then there were other Shia clerics, um, one in particular, Fazlullah Nouri, who basically uh, was very adamantly on the other side of the divide and, and got executed for his efforts, it has to be said. Uh, he was very much against the Constitutional Revolution and argued that this was a sort of a heretical and, and uh, uh, Western innovation into the body politic of Iran. Um, so, I mean, I, I think in terms of, on one level, if you're looking at the clerical um, role in, in, in the Constitutional Revolution. They basically divided, you know, between two different camps. If you're looking at, you know, broadly, broader theological issues, I mean, there are quite striking aspects of the way in which Shiism allowed, I suppose, for a much more uh, open investigation into scripture and the way in which, um, uh, you know, the law might be interpreted from the present. In that sense, Shia Islam had a sort of a a, a role in continuous interpretation and of course you've got the uh, aspects of things like the Barbie revolt and other sort of aspects in, in Iran in the 19th century which which in many ways shatter the sort of sheer orthodoxy and allow for much more uh, free thinking to take place in terms of uh, both politics and religion in Iran. Um, I appreciate that's a bit of an abbreviated response but it has to be otherwise I could go into a lot lot more depth in terms of, 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 of those influences but broadly speaking I think the best way to look at it is it does have a uh, an important influence and um, uh, very much you know there were clerics on on really both sides of, of, of the uh, political divide. Okay and do you think that there is any correlation between the constitutional revolution of 1906 and the Young Turks revolutions of or the Young Turks revolution of 1876 and 1908? I think there is a I think there is certainly influence coming from the Ottoman Empire and the and um, the um, young Ottomans in particular in the 1876 constitutional, um, uh, I don't know if it would be called revolution, but their movement at that time towards the imposition of a constitution. I think the 1908 Young Turk Revolution is something more distinct. I mean, the, clearly they impact on each other. And I think the influence of the Ottomans on Iran um, and Iranian political development is is there. Um, but it's, it's also, in some ways, because the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman sort of intellectual societies, including Freemasons, by the way, also fed into their Iranian counterparts. So they also were a route by which Western ideas were mediated through into Iran. So it's not, I mean, one of the things we have to be careful about, I think, is to say that there were Ottoman influences on Iran. I don't think there were specifically Ottoman influences. I mean, even the Ottoman constitution of 1876 is really drawn from Western models. So what they're doing is they're mediating, basically, ideas from the West into, into Iran. And, of course, the Iranians are also borrowing from things that they see uh, in their contacts through um, Russia. So, you know, many of the French ideas that you get in 
in Iran that come through to Iran are actually mediated through through the Russian experience. Actually, this is really interesting element. You covered this very thoroughly in the beginning, first part of um, part of your lecture, so the different threads and mediation. One of the things that really struck me was the particularly the kind of dialogue with Britain, mm-hmm. um, and obviously we're sort of. Uh, and the West more broadly, but Britain you particularly yeah. uh, specify. Obviously, we're quite familiar with works like Ebel Said's Orientalism, mm-hmm. and we understand that um, the Orient uh, in the sort of British and Western European imagination was uh, was uh, viewed that part of the world very differently to how it did other sorts of imperial interests, uh, such as in Africa. And what was quite striking was the degree to which you would you say that some of that some of that British Orientalism, some of the mm. way the British saw the Iranians, for example, might actually have then ironically kind of fed into the way the Iranians sort of thought about their own future and thought about their own sort of political futures and and desires. Well, I mean, I think I I, I think the relationship is much more. Um uh, reciprocal, I think, than, than than even Said would suggest. I mean, Said's reading of it is, is I think, uh, quite selective, um, in the sense that uh, if you look at the relationship between British thinkers, statesmen, diplomats, and their Iranian counterparts from the beginning of the 19th century, it's a much more interesting one. Um, the British, you know, what Said does is he basically tries to take a snapshot of a period of high imperialism and then basically transplant it to the entire experience. And I think that there, there are problems with that. If you look at the the earlier travellers to um, Iran, and of course, the, the other thing you have to bear in mind, of course, is that British and European travellers to Iran came with a huge amount of cultural baggage, not all of it of which was bad, I have to say. I mean, many people come out with this uh, particular idea of Persia, which is drawn from classical and biblical texts. It's actually quite positive. Um, probably more positive than the Iranians themselves really fully appreciate. I mean, there, there, isn't, there is, a, to your point, actually, about the way in which the Iranians imagine themselves. Of course, they do adopt um, a number of ideas that are brought in with the, with the development of historical study in Iran, uh, in the West, or, you know, the development of historical, the discipline of history, shall I say, that they do become more um, enamored, obviously, with uh, aspects of their past, particularly the Archimedes and Cyrus and this sort of thing, which they had previously essentially forgotten. But I think the the main point I have to say here is that I think the British, when they approached Iran in the early 19th century, were much more open to the idea that their model of development, if we want to call it Whiggish, um, was something that, you know, other states could aspire to. And they were quite open to the fact, and they would say this, and it's very clear in the text when you look at it and the way in which the Iranians also adopted it. That's why the Iranians found it very attractive. What What they're saying to the Iranians is that your problem is not fundamentally a social or a genetic one that many sort of advocates of racial theories did you know by the end of the 19th century your problem is fundamentally a political one and if you look at our experience and they're very explicit about it they say you know 150 years ago we were in a complete mess but uh, look what we've done we've transformed our fortunes by adopting all sorts of things like education and law and this sort of thing so if you do this you can do this too and and you can see how um iranian uh Iranian intellectuals find that option sort of attractive. I mean, they sort of see it as a as a means to get out of the mess that they're in, particularly in terms of their relationship with Russia. So Russia is really the the, the chief military and political threat to Iran in this period, and the British, for various reasons, are also obviously a um, on on one level a sort of a threat to Iranian sovereignty, but on another level, you have to see the British as as the sort of poor cousin in this respect, because they just don't have that sort of hard power reach that the Russians do. So what they, the, what the British do instead is they exercise 
you know, what we might loosely term is soft power. Mm-hmm. And that is really to try and persuade the Iranians that actually the British way is the better way of doing things. And and to a large extent, they're actually pretty successful at doing it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the Persian travelers to, to Britain in the 19th century. I mean, it's quite striking how they absorb what I would call a very Palmerstonian, I think, reading of British history. <laughs> I mean, almost, you know, it's almost explicitly so. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they, they find the prospect of, uh, of progress, and I put that in inverted commas, but the prospect that is, is presented to them as, as, as quite intoxicating in many ways. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's sort of a combination of a degree of flattery that this is civilization that is capable of emulating mm. what Britain has done, but also, ironically, a sort of sense of a telling of the British version of of its own history, sort of thing. Which is well, you see, the British, yeah, and and I think I think what people forget is that in the early Enlightenment, you know, experience and encounter, um, there is a sort of a, uh, you know, they they don't see it as a British or a European necessarily experienced it becomes that over time obviously but what they tend to do is they they tend to articulate this in a much more general universal sort of um, humanism if I can put it that way so even if you look at earlier texts from the 17th and 18th centuries you see them draw I mean think of Montesquieu's Persian letters I mean why would you have the Persian letters rather than the Ottoman letters I mean basically all the Chinese letters for that matter is basically as the Persians are seen as actually respectable people that can talk about the failures of France you know in the Regency period but you see similar things going on in in Britain but the 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 Persian experience if I can put it that way however imagined and largely fantastical it has to be said but nonetheless it's seen as something positive so in a sense what the the British are conveying uh, in an intellectual sense uh, although this sort of dissipates as you move forward is that basically you know we learned off you we've adapted it rather well and now we're bringing back the lesson to you do you see what I mean it's a it's a roundabout way so I again I wouldn't I wouldn't read it quite in the way as as Said has done I mean I always think that Said offers makes a very valuable contribution to the debate but at the end of the day he's a professor of comparative literature so I mean I, I, I think we ought to just be a bit careful about his historical understanding Absolutely fair enough. Um, just to just to zone out mm-hmm. now a bit and yeah, yeah. think more about sort of the pattern or shape or process or the sort of process of change and revolutions mm-hmm. anyway. And obviously, um, we've got a model here for a constitutional <laughs> revolution mm-hmm. that we might have seen in sort of other parts of the world, other periods of time. Is yeah. it, does it make any sense at all to maybe uh, draw some comparisons here about? the extent to which uh, constitutional revolutions, particularly those led by the elites, the political elites, the Mm -hmm. educated elites, to which they are possibly more effective, but also have some very severe limitations in them. Obviously, we can think of France, we can think of America, Mm -hmm. obvious comparisons to make. (laughs) I'm sure you can draw more. No, no, I mean, I I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think they have their, I I think they have their uh, impact. I mean, as we were discussing a bit earlier, you know, I mean, the, the, the fact is that in Iran at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the only revolutionary movement that you could have would be one led by the elites. I mean, very explicitly led by the elites. It's the elites that are illiterate. You know, it's the elites that are in contact with Western ideas or other international ideas. They're connected. Um, I mean, it depends how you define elite, of course. But basically, if we talk about a literary, um, a sort of a republic of letters, I mean, this is a very small number of people. And they come from various groups that we would now describe as a sort of a, a leadership elite. Now, 
it that being said you know some of the ideas that they come out with are pretty dramatic i mean they're quite radical they talk about the sovereignty of the people for instance i mean this is very interesting you know they talk about you know they 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 talk about what we would understand now as as a fairly sort of quote democratic element to it now they wouldn't use necessarily the word democratic themselves in those days because it wasn't a popular term i mean it was more about the republic but what they talk about is they talk about mass education for instance they talk about you know um educating you know women they talk about you know th- there's all sorts of things that come in you know that eventually come into this constitutional settlement it's very much yes a sort of a liberal elite if you can if we can use that word and in many ways um i think their achievements in 1906 if you were to contrast it with what happens in 1978-79 with the islamic revolution which many people consider to be a much more popular revolution uh it's also a lot more violent the 1978-79 revolution and in many ways much more transformative but at the same time one might say uh, less effective in the long term because what it does is it uproots a lot of traditions now one of one of the things that the iranians have always um battled with the iranian reformers is how do you reconcile tradition with modernity and of course you know the key thinker that comes over and over again with them is burke i mean this is the person they sort of, they they so that's why britain again becomes a sort of a popular figure for them or a popular model because for them it's this they look at the french example and they say and many of them you know certainly will will aspire to have this sort of french revolutionary zeal um and to emulate you know robespierre and danton and this sort of thing but at the same time um they get a little bit wary of this notion of the of, of the violence of the french revolution the execution of the king for instance all this sort of thing it, it you know it doesn't sit well with with a number of them whereas a sort of a constitutional revolution which is as you quite rightly say more limited may by virtue of its limitations be more durable and i think actually history uh, history um bears that out so there are some radical ideas in there and and possibly they're sort of they sort of uh, play more even if they're not actually achieved they mm. sort of enter into the kind of they enter into discourse imagination yeah yeah absolutely um, and so that's one area they sort of are performing quite transformative work but what were the kind of sort of harder kind of social transformation impacts of the constitutional revolution would you say for the majority of people i think i think the 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 the, the tragic paradox or would it be tragic irony i don't know which one would be the best word the tragic idea is that basically they come out with the most extraordinarily progressive ideas and then find that they don't have the means to implement them so this is the problem i mean it's 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 the it's the sort of the the tragedy of the liberal revolution writ over you know they all get very excited uh, set up a parliament go in start discussing you know all these fantastical plans and then find that actually you know there is no state actually we ha- we we have no governing institutions to do these things you know they they realize oh we need money well how are we going to raise money oh we need to have taxes well who's going to collect them yeah i mean there's all sorts of things like this so what you find actually is that ultimately after 15 years of a complete in the great war and also and it, it turns into a complete mess is that you know what these intellectuals look at they say what we really need you know is a napoleon like figure to come and sort of sort this place out and build build the government from the ground up and then we can start thinking about you know let's get good governance in place then they come to the conclusion that iran can't really sustain or wouldn't be able to produce a napoleon like figure because we're not very similar to france at the end of the 18th century what are we more similar to they say and the tragedy is these are they were more similar to russia actually at the beginning of the <laughs> beginning of the uh, 18th century yeah and the, so therefore the, and the, it's very explicitly said in the text they say what we need is a peter the great mm. now 
what that means, of course, is that many of the more progressive um, reforms that come off the back of the Constitutional Revolution are then basically uh, imposed by an autocrat, you know, Reza Shah, and that happens at the beginning of the Pahlavis in the 1920s and 30s. But, beg your pardon, it's basically true. And it's a fact that many Iranians will sort of like um, recognize this now, that, you know, the state that is built on the back of the ideas of the Constitutional Revolution and then on the sort of blood, sweat and tears, it has to be said, of, you know, the, the, the first path of the monarchy is basically the state that we have today. I mean, it's basically being run down, I have to say, but it's the state we have today. The, the problem with it, of course, is that, and I think I mentioned it in the lecture, is that they only get so far... You know, Reza Shah rules till 1941. He largely loses focus, really, in the last few years of his life and then ultimately is overthrown after the Allied occupation in the Second World War. And many Iranians lament the fact, they sort of say, had he been allowed to see out his reign, it's, it's a matter of debate, to be honest, but had he been able to see out his reign, then many of the reforms that needed to be put in uh, to complete them would have been able to put in. I personally don't think that these sort of reforms are, are capable in a single generation. I mean, I think these things take time. But, you know, to give you a, sim sing uh, a simple example, uh, judicial reform. So what you see in this period is a judicial reform that sets up a complete judiciary um, almost from scratch. I mean, it's the most extraordinary thing. But what they forget really to do is citizens' rights. So what you, what you have is a very strong state empowered by a judiciary, a new judiciary, but you don't have actually the sort of mechanisms for the defense of individual rights. And this is something people expect would be done during the reign of his son, uh, and of course isn't. I mean, this is, this is the problem. How do you think this movement impacted on the recent revolutionary activity in Iran? Um, so that's sort of bringing us right back up today. A mm -hmm. sort of slight step further back was also, you know, previous kind of the, the sort of revolutionary activity kind of post that period um, generally. Um, and, you know, were there sort of long-term consequences uh, in terms of the relationship with places like Iraq and things like this? So, so I, I suppose a sort of neat summary, <laughs> if you will. Well, I mean, first of all, I'll say that the, the, the Constitutional Revolution sets the template for political activity from then on in. Now, whether you love it or hate it, mm -hmm. you're always referring to it. Okay, so that's one thing. And many of the clerics that lead the revolution in 78, 79 hate it, but nevertheless, they, 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 they refer to it. And, of course, you, nobody ever gets rid of a parliament. A parliament's there a fixture. The fact that everyone ignores it is another matter, but the fact is the parliament is there. I mean, so people sort of like have it. I think if what's the interesting thing for me is if you look the if 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 you look at the experience of young people and certainly in the protests and demonstrations that you see over the last few years certainly and 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 I would say actually going back to two thousand and nine in the green movement, they all refer to this notion of the constitutional revolution and the fact that it has not yet been fulfilled, and so even at the centenary of the constitutional revolution, there were students who were getting up and saying, you know, how far have we come? We've come quite far, but we haven't actually fulfilled the promise. I think many people now are rediscovering the intellectuals of that period who are they often and were very, very dismissive of because they said, you know, to coin a word, they were quite bourgeois. You know, I mean, they weren't so... so bit, but what they then realised is actually if you looked in more depth at some of the... First of all, I would dispute the fact that a lot of them, all of them were bourgeois by any stretch of the imagination. But even then, if you looked at them and they, and they compared the sort of the way in which they thought about the development of the Iranian state in its own context and with its own limitations compared to some of the more radical, you know, revolutionaries of the later period, they found that they were much deeper thinkers, actually. They had thought about this problem for a very long time and were trying to find ways, as I said, to reconcile tradition with modernity, to maintain Iran's identity within the sort of the, the, the tsunami of westernization, if you may call it, or modernity. So 
What I find fascinating is that people are increasingly turning to that revolution as the model and the template for the way forward. And what they want is good governance. I mean, that's what they want. They want good governance, the rule of law, education for all, sovereignty of the people, separation of church and state, secularism. I mean, all sorts of things that actually should be, you know, music to our ears in the West, actually. I mean, we find we, we get a bit embarrassed by this now, you see, of course, because, you know, the idea that anyone in the non-European world might actually find some of the ideas of the European Enlightenment or Westernization as, as, as attractive seems a little bit misplaced these days. But the fact, because I think we've lost faith, actually, to be honest, but I mean, if you look at it, I think it's 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 interesting it's 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 uh, it shows i think for me that there are certain fundamental values about for the sake of argument equality before the law and you know these sort of things which which have a very strong attraction mm. you know and a and a powerful influence and um you know it it it, it it, it's perhaps a salutary reminder to us in the West that you know we mustn't also lose sight of certain things that have have have, uh, have, have shaped our own history over the last 150 or 200 years. So um, I think that impact on Iran, I think, is is going in the long term and looking to the future, as you suggested. I look to the future. Uh, I think will be much much more impactful. I think the idea that I, I think people have understood that religion and politics don't mix. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, as, as one Iranian thinker said, he said, and I think he put it very well. Um, and he said, he said, we thought we would bring religion into politics to make politics more ethical. What instead we've done is we've made religion more political. And in a sense, we've corrupted it. And so actually, you know, they said the model we ought to be looking at is not the French model, incidentally. The French model of secularism or laicism, as they call it, is not the one we want to follow. But the one that we find quite attractive is the American or the Anglo-American model. That is you know, where you have a sort of a separation of, of politics and religion. I mean, to a, greater, to a greater or lesser extent, it has to be said, because it doesn't always work. But at least the principle should be there. And um, in that sense, you know, religion will be protected, you see. That's the way they view it. You know, religion will be protected from the corruption of politics. And of course, that makes complete sense in a country where religion is still a very live, active and important That's right. course. Whereas, you know, obviously, somewhere like France, that was very... Yeah, I know, I know. Very yeah. <laughs> a very different and story. It's just so fascinating how, once again, you've got that kind of, um, the, the sort of prevalence of that sort of Whiggish account of history, which is that actually progress is, um, you know, we used to sort of knocking the idea of progress, but actually progress is this ongoing work in progress. It that's is. the point. And I mean, uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. As sensible. I mean, I think I think it's absolutely right. And I think one of the things it reminds us, by the way, and this to go back to the original, you know, British encounter with the Iranians in the in the early 19th century, there is no conception there that the, you know, so when we talk about civilization, you know, the, the way they use the word um, is is basically as, as it, it's a verb, you know, we, we are going towards something, but we can also lose it. I mean, this, this is the thing, you see, whereas this idea that you get in the 20th century of civilization being some sort of fixed, you know, the West is civilized and everyone else, it's, it's just not, you know, it just doesn't feature, you know, I mean, so I think that's much, much more, you know, if we were to become more familiar with, you know, with the origins, of that, I think it would be better for us, because I, I, I think, you know, there's a sort of a slight complacency, if I may say so, about, you know, whether we are always going to remain civilized or whatever word you want to use, by the way, I mean, that's obviously a 19th century term. But uh, I think you clearly see this in, um, in, in, in Iran, that they, um, you know, it's something that for them, provides a means of uh, development in a particular direction which many of them find attractive.
Thank you very much, uh, <laughs> Professor Ali Ansari, for joining me today. And thank you very much, uh, you all you at home, for listening. <laughs>